the, the things I love about IHOPE is I think we are a very humble church. I mean that looking at softball, we can lose by 25 points and everybody will still show up to church and have a good time. But also, I mean that seriously, is that even though that Pastor Matt is gone and even Pat, the worship director, is, is gone, we can have people step up, help out, people like Jesse lead us in worship. Um, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael, um, having the opportunity to, to speak today, and so I am I'm thankful for that. And so I always like to begin with prayer. So let us pray once again. Dear God, we thank you so much for who you are, God, that you are a, a great and awesome God, um, that we have the, the privilege of, of hearing from you today, uh, from, from your word uh, that you have revealed to us. God, I pray that you may reveal the truth about our hearts, reveal the truth about what we desire and what we want, um, and help us to conform that to, to your image. Help our hearts to be in line with you and help you be the, the object of our, of our worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, so yes, what I, what I wanted to talk to us about today is kind of something that probably you've, you've heard if you've been in, in church for a little bit, but it's the idea of idolatry, right? It's, it's idols, and you might be thinking, okay, what? Like, what's going on? Like, I know what an idol is. I know um, even as we read throughout the Bible, right, we see idols that were made, right? Like, in Exodus, God saves his people, Israel, and they make an idol. They, they make this golden calf as an object of worship. We also see all throughout the Old Testament that the, the pagans, those who, who weren't the Israelites, those who weren't Jewish, were the ones who, who fashioned idols, right, that they either went down, went to their backyard and cut down a tree, and then they, they fashioned this lump of, of uh, a tree trunk or something into, into something that they could worship, they could put on their, their fireplace, if they had fireplaces back then. Um, or if it was a more precious, more um, spiritual kind of thing, that they would make it out of, out of silver, out of gold, it would be, okay, this is important to me, so I'm making it out of an important metal, right? And so we see that throughout the Old Testament, but even we, we see that today, right? We see that in a lot of Eastern, Eastern Hemisphere religions, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, that they, they fashion and they have these idols in which they show as their object of worship, their object of embracing. This is, this is what we worship. This is what we turn our eyes to. And so then, probably all thinking, all right, Mike, I don't have maybe something that I put on my fireplace that I worship. It's not like I, I created this kind of structure. I, I went into my backyard, cut down a tree, and made it into to something that I could, I could worship. It's not that I've put fashioned gold and, and silver and made this into something. But I think idolatry is something that we face today. I think that's something that is a, a battle within our hearts. And so I think it's, it's important for us to, to take time today to look at a, a passage of scripture that, that looks at idolatry, that looks at the things of the heart for us to examine and say, God, is this, is this true of me? Because while it might not be the, the physical 
image of something that we, we make. Idolatry today seems more subtle. It seems more sneaky than a physical thing that, that we have. And I think the Bible kind of tells us this. The Bible looks at, okay, what is an idol? An idol is something that our hearts crave after. It's something that our hearts worship. And so I think even as we, we look throughout the Old Testament, the, the book of wisdom, right, Proverbs, we turn to Proverbs and, and it says that your heart is the wellspring of life. From your heart come all things. And so it says protect your heart. The, the, the probably second wisest person ever to have walked the face of the earth, Solomon, was saying, guard your heart. This is important. Your heart is, is who you are. Like, you cannot separate who you are from your heart. Your heart is so intimate to who you are that what, if you show me a man's heart, I can show you what they worship. And so we see that in, in the Old Testament, but we also see that with the wisest person, turning our, our attention to the New Testament. We see what Jesus says about this. He says it in Matthew chapter 15. I don't know if we have it on the screens or not, uh, but in Matthew chapter 15, uh, he says, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles us. Uh, this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. To, do, uh, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so, just in the context, right, we see that um, they're talking about clean and unclean things, but what Jesus is getting at here is what comes out of the heart is who we are, right? And so we saw that first in what Jesus says. It's what, what comes out of the heart is belief. It's, it's a belief, but it's not only that, it's, it's an action, right? That's theft, it's murder, it's adultery. So all these things come from the heart. So the heart is central to who we are, not the, the physical heart that we have, but the Bible uses the term heart to give us an understanding of, of what controls us, what sits on the throne of our life, to use that metaphor. And so I think all throughout Scripture we see that if you look at somebody's heart, if you are able to, to have a, a spiritual EKG, which will examine the heart of somebody, you'd be able to see what it is that they worship. And so you might be thinking, okay, Mike, I get this. I, I understand what you're saying, but I am, I'm a believer. Like, I, I have turned from my sins. I have believed in Jesus Christ. That's all gone, right? So yes and no, right? That's, that's also what, what Scripture tells us. It, it talks about the idea of the flesh and the idea of the Spirit. For those of us before Christ, we, we live and our hearts are controlled by the flesh. That everything that our hearts go after is selfish. It's focused on me. It's focused on what, what I can get, what I desire to fulfill my passions, my desires. But those of us who have been, been transformed by the gospel, the gospel has come into us. We have a new life, a new heart. The spirit is working inside of us. The spirit has given us this new life. And so as Galatians even talks about that, those who are in Christ, their desires of the flesh have ceased. And Paul says that in one sense that, yes, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer held captive. The flesh no longer rules 
our hearts like it once did. So in one sense, yes, we are free. But in another sense, as we see all throughout the New Testament, there is a command, there's a pursuit for all of us to say, okay, we are to live a life that pursues after Jesus, but yet there's always that sin. It's almost that stickiness of sin that, that kind of keeps coming after, after us, and we have to, to fight to keep it under control. And so I think what, what, Paul or what Paul and other people in the New Testament are saying is, yes, there's a already side of this and a not yet. That's the kind of fancy theological term. Already we have been saved, we have this new heart, but it's not fully there. We're, we're not perfect, we're not in heaven, and so there are still battles with sin that we have. And so I think as we turn to our text today in James chapter 4, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, recognizes this. Now, James is considered the kind of New Testament Proverbs, right? As many scholars have thought, um, it, it's very similar to the Proverbs. It's very similar to, to the wise sayings of how Solomon wrote Proverbs. And so as we look to, to the epistle of James, we see James looking at the heart. James looking um, and showing us that, yes, while we have been set free from sin, there are still desires, there are still sinful desires that wage war against our souls. And so he gives us what we are to do and how we are to, to understand this. So looking at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes fights and what causes, or what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose as the scripture says, he yearns jealous, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so as we kind of just look at this, this central passage for, for today, I think James has a lot to say, a lot to speak about our heart, about the desires of our heart and how, how even if we are a believer, if we've been born again, that these kind of desires can, can wage war against us. And so an easy, helpful breakdown for us, I think, as we look at this, is the first kind of three verses of, of this chapter kind of look at what the problem is. The problem of our heart is that we have inordinate desires. The desires of our life are too high sometimes at things that they shouldn't be. And then we see in verses kind of four through six, we see the kind of rebuke, the, the judgment for having these wrong, sinful desires. And then it kind of concludes with, with James as any good epistle writer would do, not just, okay, this is the problem, this is it, but he says, turn, turn to God, and this is the response that we have. And so, 
and kind of reading and studying this, I thought this was helpful, kind of a helpful structure for us to, to go off of. And so I'm going to spend my time kind of looking at that as well. And so beginning, I want us to look at the problem. What is the problem that we see? And so, as again, we, we saw in, in verses one through three. If you were listening, there were, there were a couple things that, that were mentioned. It's your passions, it's your desires, it's what you covet, it's what, what again, it says at the end, your passions. And so as, as we look at this, we, we can see that, that James is narrowing the focus down on what the issue is. He's, he's narrowing the focus down on what causes these problems within us. He says, it's your passions, it's your desires. And where do those come from? They come from your heart, right? Your, is your heart is the center of, of life, is the, is the seat, the throne upon which all things are dictated. James is saying that the problem here are these passions, these desires, they are too inordinate, they are too extreme. And so, what does that mean? Well, that could look like idolatry in different, different ways and different things. And so for maybe some of us, that's the idol of a family, right? That's probably a pretty, a pretty common one that we have maybe a thought that family is going to be what provides us happiness, what provides us joy, what provides us everything that we could hope for, right? And so we have this idea in our mind that, okay, we are going to have a family and we're all going to be close. We're all going to live within a three-mile radius from, from the house that nobody's ever going to move outside of that, and we're all going to be physically close to each other, right? That's, that's, that's a dream. That, that's the goal that, that we might have. Going along with, with that of family, it might be, okay, like this family that, that we have provides security. It provides me comfort. It provides me happiness and love. And so maybe I didn't have that growing up in my family, but I'm like, knowing that when I would have a husband and a wife and, ch and kids, like, we would be together. We, we, we would do this all together. It, it would be a time of, of great celebration, time of great happiness that we would have. And so the, the family now that, that I would have is going to provide me all these things that, that maybe I didn't have before. And maybe that, that might even look like as, as a parent looking to their kids saying, okay, like, I'm going to, to raise my kids, and they're going to be good citizens. They're going to be moral people. They're going to be the bosses and the CEOs and the, um, and, and the people in, in society that are doing well, right? Everybody wants to have those types of kids. And so it could be an idol of family, or it could be, even in my case, more personally, possibly an idol of of marriage, right? As, as a single dude right now, I, I do desire to, to have a spouse. I want that to, to happen sometimes sooner than, than others, um, but that's something I would want, right? I, I want to have that, that intimacy. I want to have that, that person you can confide in, that person you can trust in, that person um, that is just going to be there for you through thick and thin, no matter, no matter what happens, they're going to be there for you. So they can provide that, that intimacy aspect. They can provide that um, just joy in, in suffering, that, that, that happiness of you're just, you, get, you got a promotion, you want to tell somebody, so you run to your spouse and you say, this is what happened, this is fantastic, this is great. Um, to have that intimate aspect of it, but to have that, that fun, to have that um, person that you just desire to have. 
or maybe it, it could even be not even necessarily a, a material thing like a family or a spouse. Maybe it's an immaterial thing like security. Like maybe an idol is that of security in your life, that you feel like if I just have all of my finances put together in the right way, that I will be secure. I won't have to worry about retirement. I won't have to worry about a loss of job. Like I'll have everything that I need put together the right way. Maybe it's the, the, the security aspect um, when it comes to family, that if, if I, I can just order everything right, if everything can work out, it will be perfect. And so now, you're probably a little confused of just being like, well, you just said that idolatry is, is something that, um, that the object of that is, is your worship, that the object of, of the thing that sits on your heart is worship. But then you said, like, family. And you talked about, like, a spouse. You talked about security, right? Like, aren't all these things good? Like, shouldn't we want all of these things? Like, shouldn't we want to have a, a happy and healthy family that we all love each other? Shouldn't we want to have a spouse that we are excited to have that is kind of our other half? Shouldn't we want to have security? Shouldn't we want to have these things in our life? Like, who's this? What, what's this guy talking about? And what I think we can look at is the problem is not in the thing itself. The problem for all these situations is not the family. Man, if I just had a, a different family, this would have been better. Had I had a different spouse, this would be better. Had, had she or he done this, it would have been better. The problem is not the thing itself, right? We see all throughout scripture that, especially in, in the realm of marriage, God says this is a good thing. It's not good that man should be alone. He has put us together to be, to be one, man and wife together. And so it's like, okay, so it's, it's not the thing itself that's maybe bad. But I don't even think it's the desire for these things is bad, right? Like, we shouldn't want to be like, yeah, I want to have a terrible family. I want to have a terrible wife. I, I don't want to be secure at all, right? That's, that's nonsense. And so it's not the thing itself. It's not the desire that's wrong but it's the inordinate desire that is wrong. It's the inordinate desire of family. It's the inordinate desire of marriage or security or a job or comfort or fill in the blank of whatever that may be. Because one of, uh, a pastor friend of mine said a while ago is when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Let me repeat that. When a good thing a good thing like marriage, a good thing like family, a good thing like security, becomes a God thing, the thing that sits on the throne of your heart in which you worship, in which everything of your life says, this is it, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a sinful thing because that is the one object, whether it be an immaterial thing, whether it be a material thing, that is the object of a worship. And so when a good thing becomes a bad thing, or, or when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And so to, to look more at this, to, to give us a better understanding of idolatry, right? Idolatry is, as we said, the worship of some object that is not God. It's, it's the worship of something um, that absorbs our heart's imagination. I thought that was an interesting way, a, a definition that I heard. It's 
that which absorbs your heart's imagination. And so when you have freedom, when you have time to think, when you have time to, to daydream, when you have time to put together your perfect life, what is that? What's the object of that? Another definition is, if I have blank, if I have whatever this is, I will have meaning, I will have value, I will have purpose. John Calvin helpfully said about idols, which I think is very interesting, he says, our hearts are idol factories, right? And so I've only worked in a factory for, for one day, a couple years ago before I started working landscaping over one summer. But I was working, and the goal of a factory is production, right? You need to have this object made, maybe you're just on a line, you do one thing, pass it over, and the goal is all about production. It's all about getting it done. And so what, what John Calvin says 500 years ago is that our hearts are like that. Our hearts are insatiable. Our hearts are active. They want to be filled. It's, it's almost the idea of like a black hole, right? A black hole just sucks everything in. It, it just, you can't, you can't fill up a black hole. A black hole just continues to, to want. There is no light that, out, out, um, that goes past a black hole. And so in, the, in, the, in a similar sense, our hearts are insatiable. They, they grab onto something. They cling to it. They want it. And so that is what gives them value. And so what does that look like for us? What, what, um, I think there's a, a helpful illustration that one of my professors gave us. As we see on the, the uh, board behind me, it says uh, the staircase diagram. And so as, as we can see here, um, it's, hopefully you guys can all see the chair. It's a two-dimensional thing. He wasn't the best artist, but this is what he showed us. But it's the chair from, if you see the legs A and D, and then we have like the cross kind of sitting on the seat. We see that that is kind of the illustration of our lives, right? Our, our lives are, are this throne. Our lives are meant to have Jesus sitting on the throne. Jesus is the object of our true worship. He is the one who created all things, and so he deserves to have the seat of the throne of our lives. But you also see, starting in kind of letter F, or letter F, kind of like a staircase, right? You see that kind of going up. And so he helpfully put it this way, where we have all of these desires on the ground, right? At the footstool of, of the seat. At the throne of Jesus, we have the, these desires labeled A through G. And so maybe that is um, good things of family, of marriage, of security, of comfort, of our job. The, these are things that God has given us that, that are good, that, that we are to, to embrace, that, that we, he has made for us. But as we see that little staircase, I think sometimes our desires can kind of walk up that staircase. And so maybe the first couple stairs, it goes from, man, like, I really want this relationship. Like, I, I really, really want this thing to happen. Like, I want to, to be in this relationship right now. And so maybe after a couple of those stairs, it goes then to a greater desire of craving. Like, it's just like, I'm sure we've all maybe craved food. It's just like, I have to have pickles and ice cream right now. And it's just like, I need this right now. It's a, it's a craving. Like, everything else shuts down, and you just have to have this right now. And so in the same sense, these cravings in our lives for these inordinate desires can, 
can go up the scale, can go up the, the staircase. And then finally, I think, as my professor put it, hopefully, he says, then it becomes a need. Then it becomes, I have to have it. This is the only thing that will become what, what, what fulfills me. And so as that desire begins to go from a want to a crave to a need, it replaces Jesus from the throne. And that, that inordinate desire then is the thing ruling all, all else. Right? As, as even Jesus says in, in the Gospels, you cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God and money. Right? That's just one example that Jesus gave. And so I think in the same sense of this illustration, as desires can creep up, the desires can, can go from wanting it, I, I want this, to craving it, I, I really, really want this, to a need, I, I have to have this. This is the only thing that will satisfy me. And I think that's when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And so then as we, we turn from kind of the first section of, of what James says here, the, the problem of our inordinate desires, we then go to what, what James kind of rebukes us for in, in verses four through seven. He, he says three different things about this. He says, you adulterous people, right? As, as James is writing, as, as we see in the beginning of, of the book of James, he's writing to believers. He's writing to those people, like I said, who, who have been transformed by the gospel, who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and that are still in this fighting period that they, they have. The flesh has, has ceased in their life to, to be the ruling factor of their hearts, but there is still some motivating factor of, of the flesh that, that wages war against the spirit with us. And so he says, you adulterous people. Now, I think that's a, a good illustration of, of what, what that looks like, right? Because adultery is breaking a covenant that, that you had with somebody, right? We, we might see that in, in marriage, breaking a, a love covenant that you have with this one person. And so in the same sense, James is rebuking them and saying, you adulterous people. Like that, that Jesus is the person who has given you life. Jesus has transformed your heart, but yet you are so quickly and so easily swayed by other desires. The, these desires so quickly move up the staircase of your life and supplant Jesus on the throne. And so he calls them, you adulterous people. He continues on with the kind of second rebuke. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Right, and so he's, he's saying that if you are a friend of the world, you're opposed to God. You're God's enemy. Like the Derrick Henry stiff arm that happened um, to, to Norwood a couple years ago, it's like, it's what we do to God. If, if um, you reject God, then you are in line with the world. You're opposed to God. And so what, what can the world give to you? What can the world do to satisfy your heart? Uh, the only thing that, that the world can give is these desires in which you try to fill your heart with. You, you try, okay, maybe money, may, maybe this job, maybe this position will allow me to, to have that satisfaction in my heart. But then again, that seems empty after a little bit. And so maybe then it turns to maybe a relationship. This, this thing, this, this person will be able to fulfill my heart's desire, will be able to satiate my 
passion. And then that also seems wandering. And so you have all these things that the world pushes at you, right? You see this all over in entertainment. You see all this all over social media, like, is, is calling for your heart's attention. It's, it's, it's all calling for your heart to say, okay, c come, have your fill. But what happens? It's the heart is, is never filled. The heart is left wandering. The heart is left wanting more. And so Jesus continues on. He says, you're not only adulterous, you're not only enemies for those who, who pursue these inordinate passions, but thirdly, it says that God has opposed you, right? It says in uh, verses, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we see three things that, that, are, that are stark that I don't want us to miss because it is important for us to, to hear the word of God. It says, God wants you to think about these things. God wants you to know that there is a rebuke for, for these. And so why? why? Why would God be rebuking these things? Why would God um, even in, in other passages like Matthew say, if you do not love me more than your mother or your father, more than your brother or sister, more than your wife or your husband, that's an offense to me. Like that, that's a pretty stark claim. But Jesus is saying that because he is the only one to fulfill your heart's desires. He is the, the one of true worship to sit on the throne of your heart and say, he deserves it. And so Jesus has the right as as the creator, to say, all other things must bow to me. And so, as we kind of conclude as, as coming to um, what I think James gives us helpful advice for, I want us to ask the question, okay, what, what does that mean? What, 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 what should I do about this? And I think, um, as I was researching and looking up, um, Timothy Keller is a, a very helpful um, source to this, and he gave in his book, Counterfeit Gods, a couple different um, pinpoint questions to, to help us reveal maybe idols in our hearts. Because I think, like I said, uh, even as believers, I think we can, we, we can battle these desires. We, we can battle these idols in our hearts, because if left unchecked, these desires goes from want to craving to a must-have. And so, Tim Keller provides kind of 20, I only provided 10 just because I wanted to, to keep it shorter, but Tim Keller provides 10 kind of diagnostic questions that help us look at what is an idol in our life. So let's, let's take a look. Number one um, is life only has meaning if I have power and influence over people. And so it's the, the power idolatry. If I only have power and influence over people, then that might be a sign to you of idolatry. Number two, I am loved and respected by blank. If you fill in the blank, that might show some, some idolatry in our hearts, some inordinate desire in our hearts that you feel the need that that is what motivates you. Number three, I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. If you think, okay, I, I just have to work harder, I just have to be a better perfectionist, I just need to get this all together. That could be a, a, a revealing of your heart of idolatry. Number four, people are dependent on me and need me. Another form of helping idolatry. Number five, I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Work, 
idolatry. Number six, I am being recognized for my accomplishments, and I'm excellent, I'm excelling in my work. Some of us might think, okay, like, I can do things well. Like, I am Mr. Fix-It, or I am the person who is very organized, who people come to me. Like, that is who I am. That could be a form of idolatry. Number seven, I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Material idolatry. Number eight, I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. So even in just the, the idea of religion and the idea of church, we can, we can, that can be an idol in our lives. Number nine, my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. Family idolatry. And number 10, Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Relationship idolatry. And so I wanted us to, to kind of look at these things and just hear these things first, just because in order for us to, to proceed, we need to recognize what maybe idols face, uh, idols we face, right? As, as these desires in our life can easily creep up the staircase and fight for the, the seat on the throne of our lives, we need to recognize first what they are. And so in a, in a room this size, I'm sure there's many different forms of idolatry, many different forms of these inordinate desires that, that come up. For mine, might be different than yours, just maybe my stage of life. I'm a single 27-year-old, and so maybe some of you are past that just a little bit. And so your, what motivates you maybe is, is not the same for me. But I think it's important for us to, to recognize. But we ultimately need to realize that the gospel is the only hope. The gospel is the only hope for us. Right, as, as we continue with the seat analogy, that Jesus is the only one who is worthy to sit on the throne of our life. Right, these, these idols and these things claim this will satisfy you. This, this will be the thing in which once you have this, you will fully reach enlightenment. You'll fully reach that um, happiness that you have desired. But unfortunately, what, what those idols, what those things don't tell you is that they're false, is that they're fantasy, is that they're dreams, right? Nobody, nobody has the perfect family. Nobody has the perfect marriage. Nobody has full security. Nobody has the perfect job. Um, and so all of these things that we fight for, all of these things that our heart seeks to, to possess, seeks to, to suck in like a black hole, the world can only provide fantasy. The world can only provide these things that don't ever really satiate the soul. And so Jesus, the, the creator of the heavens and earth, says, you know what, like, I have created you. I know, I know who you are because I, I, I've made you. And so I know how to fulfill these desires in your life. I know what it will take, and it's going to take me. It's going, I, I am the only one who will be able to sit on the throne who is worthy to be worshipped. For, for what Jesus has done, that, that he has been the one who says, you know what, like, you, you try and, and create life, you try and control life, you try and uh, make it work just so that everything works out for you. But it's like, you're not, you're not strong enough. You're not able enough to do it. But Jesus says, you know what, like, the biggest enemies that you have of sin and death and Satan, I've already defeated them. That your, your deepest longings and your deepest wants of, of love 
of, of peace, of joy, I've already, I've already given them to you. I, I am the embodiment of these things. Jesus is sitting on the throne saying, I am the one worthy to be worshipped. All these other things, while they are good, while, while God has even designed these things to happen for us, they're not ever able to, to provide complete fulfillment. Only Jesus is able to. And so then finally, what does that look like for us as believers? What does that look like for me today? And I think as, as we see in the ending part of James, he gives us a couple different things. Starting in verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so just in, in this final kind of section, we see four things that I want us to focus on. Four things that, as Paul is writing to the believers um, all throughout Asia, he wants us to see several things. First thing he says, starting in verse 7, submit yourselves. Submit. And so as I, I was looking at, at this word and what, what kind of it meant in Scripture, it's, it's the idea of listening intently. It's the idea of obeying. It's the idea of embracing who Jesus is. He's saying, do all of these things. Submit yourself. Listen to God. Be in Scripture to, to hear this God, who he is, and why he, he deserves to be seated on the throne. I think sometimes it's easy to have Jesus be pushed off the throne because we maybe don't have an, a full idea who Jesus is. We don't see the magnitude. We don't see the, the gloriousness of who Jesus is. And so when something creeps up, it's very easy to kind of musical chairs Jesus off and put something else on. And so listen, obey, and, and seek after Jesus. Embrace him for who he is. Secondly, James, James tells us to resist. He tells us to resist the devil. He says, get out of here and run as if there's a fire in this, in this place. You would run for the door as fast as you can. You, you recognize the enemy. You recognize that there is um, a battle. And so he says, resist. With everything that you can, resist. Right? And so it's, it's hard. Right? It's, it's, it's very prevalent all over society, all over entertainment, whatever TV show, whatever social media, whatever kind of thing that you do in life. It's just, we live in an environment almost like a fish in water. It's just everywhere around us that's just like, you have to have this. The world says, have this for your life to be complete. Have this for your life to have meaning. It's everywhere around us. And so sometimes we just need to resist. We need to run. Run away from Satan. Run, run away from his schemes. Run away from all these things. But he doesn't just say, say that. He doesn't just say submit. He doesn't just say resist. He also says cleanse. The idea of repenting. The idea of recognizing, God, I, I have at times an inordinate desire. I have an idol of marriage. An idol of, of thinking of, of what maybe my future spouse and what, what our lives will be together and just being like, it will be perfect. This is going to be life. I need to repent of that. That's, that's something that I want. That's something that I desire. But when it becomes a need, when it becomes, I am not satisfied unless I have this, it becomes 
an issue. And so we need to repent. We, maybe today we just need to, to stop and think and, and pray to Jesus and say, what idols do I have in my life? God, pray. I'm praying right now that you might reveal these idols to me. You might help me to see what these idols in my life are. I want to know what they are. I want to recognize them so I can run from them, so I can resist these idols. And finally, the last, the last uh, verse here, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And so James is calling us to, to humble ourselves, to come before God to, to pray. An act of dependence is just praying to God and being like, God, help me. God, I, I need your help. It's, it's very easy for me and my heart to, to cling after these things, to, to latch on. God, help me. I, I want my, my life to, to worship you. I want my life to show that you are the true king on the throne of my life. Humble yourself in community and accountability. That's, that's why God gave us the church, to, to have people that we can come alongside and say, you know what, I'm in need of help and have people pray for us, or to, to challenge us and say, you know what, Mike, like, I see this in your life, like, it, it might not be observable on the outside, but getting to know you and being friends with you, I can see, like, you have maybe this inordinate desire in your life that you feel like, oh, if you don't have this relationship, your life's not going to be complete, your life isn't going to be fully satisfying. And so having people to speak into our life, whether that's through community groups, whether that's through small groups, just having people to say that, being humble enough to accept other people's words in our lives. And finally, I think another way to, to humbly go about this is, as we see throughout Scripture, is what Jesus commands is, is fasting. There, there's many different things that Jesus calls us to do, but one of them is just fasting, just getting on your knees before God, fasting, taking a break from maybe our physical food and saying, like, God, like, I want you to reveal things to me. And it's not the, the maybe act in itself, but what fasting should lead us to, dependence on God. And so as, as we, we looked at the, the epistle of James here, I want us to, to look at our own lives, as, as I've been doing this week and will continue to do. I want each and every one of us to look and say, are there things that go up the staircase in my life that compete for the throne of Jesus, because as, as we see all throughout Scripture, as we see the, the one message is that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. If, if there's anybody who is worthy to sit on that throne, it's Jesus. For, from him creating you, from him saving you, from him redeeming you, adopting you, the list goes on and on of all of what Jesus has done for you. And the great news of the gospel is, well, what the world gives is a fantasy while the world what gives is a dream of, of the perfect thing that will satisfy you. Jesus is that reality. Jesus is the only reality that says, I can fully satisfy you. I can give you that which you desperately need. So let us pray. Dear God, um, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. I pray that you may help us to, to look at our lives, to examine um, our spiritual hearts, and see what it is that sits on the throne of them. God, it's, it's easy, um, and it's hard sometimes. The, the subtleties of, of these desires um, can, can sneak up on us. 
God. And so I pray that you'll give us eyes to see um, what these desires maybe are in our lives. Help us to, to realize them. Help us to recognize them. That, that God, if, if there are desires that we may repent, we may cast those aside and cast our eyes to you, recognizing that, that you are the one and only true God who is worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. That our, our hearts should, should desire and, and crave the worship of you and you alone. God, we pray that you might allow us to, to see this and walk humbly before you, um, that we might resist Satan, we might cling to you as you are the one worthy of all praise and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.